0: Hello everyone and welcome to UCL Mind's 8th virtual lunch hour lecture. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to my colleague and friend, Dr. Russell Burgess, who's giving today's lunch hour lecture, First Justice, Then Pills, Reimagining Global Mental Health in the Time of Covid. Dr. Burgess is lecturer in global mental health at UCL's Institute for Global Health and Deputy Director of UCL Centre for Global Non-Communicable Diseases. She completed her PhD in London School of Economics in 2014 and came to UCL as a lecturer in 2018. She is a community psychologist who researches the role of communities in tackling global health inequalities, a topic that is particularly relevant at the current time of the pandemic and the evident disparities in who is most affected by COVID-19. Dr. Birger's expertise comprises global mental health social determinants of health, including gender, ethnicity and poverty, and transformative research methodologies. She has published widely in these areas, including a book about how power structures need to be accounted for when trying to understand global health challenges, which will be out in January 2021. Dr. Birch's scholarship has informed a wide range of important issues, including women's mental health, racism and inequality. She has pioneered arguments for the need for social interventions in the global mental health field, leading groundbreaking scholarly publications in this field, including high-profile special issues and commentaries, most recently in Lancet Psychiatry. She's also remarkable in her persistent engagement in scholar activism. She uses her academic position to witness and elevate the collective experiences and narratives of those in search for justice and to communicate these experiences to wider audiences. Particularly central to her work is the use of qualitative and participatory and co-production methods to elevate the voices of many historically marginalised groups. I'm a huge admirer of her work, and you will absolutely be in for a treat with this talk, which could not be more topical. We will be taking questions via Slido. Information to join the Slido are in the event information you received, and should also be visible on the screen currently. I hope you enjoyed the lecture today, I know you will. And now over to Dr. Burgess.
1: Thanks so much, Essie, and thank you to everyone for joining us. Now, the big first trick is to see if I can get slides to share correctly. So we'll start with that um, and keep our fingers crossed. Brilliant. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today during your lunch hour, particularly at a time when there are so many competing demands on our time. Um, Recently, this morning, there was sunshine added to that list. But from where I am, we've reverted to the clouds of the uh, British summertime. But nonetheless, um, it means a lot that you're here, particularly because I'm talking about something that I have felt passionately about since I began my study of psychology many, many years ago. And that, in essence, is the importance of ensuring that when we are talking about mental health and supporting the achievement of good mental health, we do so always with the context of the worlds where peoples live in mind and in focus. Um, I believe, along with many other critical scholars before me in this field, that it will never be and never has been sufficient to simply make more mental health services available. This will only ever be one part of the picture, and we need to constantly be pushing and working towards the development and creation of societies where good mental health is possible. Um, And for that, we need to think about a lot. We need to consider the interacting social and political realities of life, the inequalities and injustices that coronavirus reminds us so clearly have been there all along. Um, But also alongside of that, coronavirus pushes us and creates an opportunity and a window to reimagine what mental health could be like, which is particularly important in many of the contexts where I work, in countries grouped under the label of the Global South. Um, for many years, I've worked in, in South Africa, recently in Colombia, and um, uh, and many other places. Uh, so, <clears throat> and I think what's important to remember as we sort of find ourselves in this particular moment is, in reality, it may be new, but it is not so new. This is very much not a case of not being our first rodeo. Um, So pandemics always have social consequences and social realities. And for long as there have been illnesses of an infectious nature, the waves of outcomes related to pandemics ultimately shape not just how our physical bodies are affected, but the very ways in which we live our lives. Um, and like many, um, in sort of my generation of global health scholars, I started my career working in the field of HIV and that pandemic though, it feels very far from our minds. Now was one that also changed everything when it arrived. Um, it changed the way that we talk about sex. It forced us to remove taboos around talking about things like protection, condom use, who you're having sex with, why sex should be important, and really d- pushed us to realize that prevention is, is something that happens at many levels and is everyone's problem and everyone's responsibility. Um, also, it um, drove New global trade policies, fueled by activism and interest in debates around corporate interests versus patient rights, um, around the importance and and justice and fairness of having access to life-saving drugs, um, and the huge inequalities there were within and between countries in terms of as- accessing life-saving treatment for HIV. And though it took some time, we also began to acknowledge and engage with and um, shift to address the fact that HIV was not just a disease of the body but was a disease that reflected the social divisions of our society, reminding us of the dangers of homophobia, um, criminalization of um, sex workers and other um, jobs that are at high risk um, in relation to contracting the HIV pandemic, the dangers of stigmatization around an illness and in societies, as well as exclusion of some groups and, and how an HIV diagnosis leads people to be pushed sometimes to the furthest margins of society. Um, and um, in addition to that, we began to think about the structural realities most, in, most dominantly poverty and the way that created sort of loops of relationships for HIV, driving both the consequences of how um, um, driving the context that sort of contribute to the development of HIV and also worsening um, outcomes as a result of it. Um, and. Again, over time, we began to talk about the relationship between HIV and mental illness, thinking not just about effects on the brain and cognitive um, abilities, as sort of the long wave survival with HIV took over, but also thinking more along the relationships between HIV structural determinants and experiences of common mental disorders, such as such as poverty. Um, and I think it was what's been particularly reassuring as we find ourselves in this current pandemic and this current crisis, is that it didn't take as long to think about um, some of these challenges that it took us a bit of time to get to grips with in terms of HIV. Um, You know, it, it, it feels like very early on, we began to reflect about the social, and political dynamics of the, the condition and also about the mental health con- consequences of the condition um, and it took weeks as opposed to years and what we ended up with was a focus in three broad areas for the most part the first of this is the mental health needs of frontline workers um, which is a, a huge of concern all around the world for example in the uk the british medical association conducted a survey in may of this year and year and identified that 33 of its members um, who were struggling with anxiety distress and burnout before was made worse by the pandemic And then, of course, there are the anxieties and worries related to other dimensions of the pandemic in their lives. For example, 56% of those surveys felt that they were only partially protected from COVID infection at the workplace, reflecting some of the early and, in some spaces, ongoing challenges with accessing PPE. Um, And this, um, in And this led to very rapid responses, such as the development and rollout of um, counseling and support systems available 24 hours a day for for NHS staff um, and other frontline workers. Um, We also are beginning to think through the specific mental health consequences of the virus itself. Um, Recent publications in journals, such as The Lancet, um, have highlighted that among people who've been hospitalized for COVID and similar coronavirus conditions such as um, SARS, Um, that delirium affected about a quarter of people hospitalized um, for COVID. Um, So delirium is a high um, concern for people who are hospitalized. But beyond that, upon discharge, there are still high rates of more common mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety with rates of around 15% and post-traumatic stress disorder with rates of around 30 percent. And these PTSD rates in particular are more elevated than we would expect them to be in the general population. And then, of course, for those who may not be infected or specifically suffering from COVID themselves, there are the wider social um, impacts of both Lockdown and related public health policies put out in response to um, the coronavirus pandemic all over the world. Um, here we are thinking about concerns and the emphasis on the dangers of loneliness and isolation to particular populations, such as those who are elderly and, and ways in which this might contribute to um, decreases in sort of cognitive function over time and people with um, dementia. Um, we also are Starting to sort of see concerns around um, the needs of of children who have been hugely affected by lockdown um, um, and the sort of disruption to their everyday lives with the interruption of school, loss of access to social relationships and dynamics, um, and and these concerns are lingering with us, particularly because as we continue to to engage with the with the coronavirus. Outbreak, we know that lockdown cycles of lockdown will be things that are repeated occurrences in our lives rather than one off. Um, and there will be the need for us to deal with many levels of loss, not only just the loss of loved ones, but the loss of, of life and particular original pathways through which we made meaning and connection but as i argued recently in um, a piece in uh, nature um, it really still feels like we are forgetting something and the something that we're forgetting is actually quite big um, in the sense that we are thinking about um, the larger wider socio-structural conditions that um, covid entered the world into sort of a huge Inequal world um, where people were already unable to access reliable food, shelter and safety. And those things carry their own mental health risks, um, distress and burden, and burdens that will be deepened by the coronavirus and risks that will be deepened by it. And in order to really grapple with some of those realities means that we need to think about mental health and our responses to mental health in slightly different ways, because as social inequalities are made worse by the pandemic, mental distress and suffering of people will also be made worse. Um, and this matters particularly in the field of global mental health, where a field that whose existence is really predicated on arguments of justice and fairness around the need to access good mental health and the ability to achieve good mental health. Um and for the most part for across the sort of the lifetime of this this movement since around two thousand and seven though many debate that it could have started a little bit earlier um, that these efforts have revolved around increasing access to mental health services in many countries um largely as I said under this umbrella of the global south where there is a an arguably a gap between the the availability of treatment and the need to access treatment that rises up to 95% in some countries. Um, But the thing to remember and that increasingly um, more um, critically engaged scholars in the field of global mental health and are beginning to grapple with is the ways in which um, mental distress and mental health problems are framed and driven by structural challenges in these parts of the world and really coming to accept that the places where mental health is lived is deeply important um, and that mental health is always both psychological and structural and relational. And so one of the ways in which we, for the most part, have focused on this is the relationship between mental health and poverty. Um, And Professor Crick Lund from UCT and also from King's College London has done a lot of work at sort of elevating discussions and attention to what we call this sort of um, mental health and poverty cycle. Um, and if you sort of follow my cursor on the screen, you'll sort of see that we've got two pathways. The purple pathway, which is the social causation pathway, thinks a little bit of, thinks and tries to engage with how poverty and social realities drive the development of poor mental health. And then the social drift pathway, which then thinks about how poor mental health leads people to fall into poverty through um, catastrophic health expenditures for medicines, the loss of employment due to to uh, stigmatization and exclusion in society. um, Once you have... um, Sort of been identified with the mental health condition in many parts of the world um, but ultimately um, this is just part of the picture and i think in terms of how we think about global mental health in the context of covid we need to push beyond poverty and think about other big socio-structural and um personal human characteristics that can drive and embed inequalities and also drive and embed mental distress that for some people can develop into full-blown mental health conditions and so that's what i'd like to talk to you you about today Um, two broad areas the first is is a potential framework for getting us to think beyond poverty think about these other big picture big structural items that feed into the experience of mental health across mental health challenges across the world, um, which I will talk about as a socio political economy uh, for global mental health. And the second is what to do with those rich understandings, what we once we've developed them and thinking along the lines of how we build mental health enabling societies so that we can ensure that our aims to Engage with mental health consequences of the coronavirus, don't just stop at biomedical treatments, but think much more broadly about the worlds in which um, people experience distress and, and live the realities of a mental health condition around the world. So, why would we need a socio political economy of, of mental health? Um, as I said, I think this is very much because we need to push beyond this idea of poverty, though we can acknowledge that this is a big part of it. It is not the only part of it. So for example, we know that coronavirus has created huge economic shocks all around the world. Um, last week, a report by the African Development Bank projected that there might be up to 30 million job losses in Africa, Um, uh, a reality that contributes in large part to some recent World Bank reports that we might see up to 100 million more people pushed into extreme poverty um, uh, as a result of sort of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, uh, In addition, in in relation to many, many of sort of economic shocks. Recent, a forthcoming paper by um, Sumitra Pathar and colleagues from the Center of Mental Health Law and Policy in Pune, in India identified that during the lockdown period in India that reports of suicide that were um, um, identified through analysis of, of media reporting suggested that um, 60 there was a 60% increase um, in death by suicide in over what we saw in the same period last year. Um, And in terms of um, death by suicide, that was related to, um, explicitly related to coronavirus. Among those deaths, we saw they were primarily male and largely among people who were um, heads of household and, um, and previously employed. Sort of looking at that direct interaction between sort of mental health sequelae and also sort of these very real economic shocks around the world Um, but we go need to go much beyond that to really capture what's happening in terms of people's mental health in relation to coronavirus one other area that is of note particularly for me and thinking about the um, mental health consequences of the violence is sort of the increased burden on groups from um Sort of peak groups from sort of majority black countries or for people who are people of color Um, in the uk we saw biased policing with sort of recent um, reports by liberty a social justice organization suggesting that um, people of color were 54 percent more likely to be fined under coronavirus policies in the UK than their white counterparts. Um, And if we sort of look at biased policing as it plays out in other parts of the world, we see sort of manifestations of of class and wealth. So in Kenya, um, local media reports have talked about how curfews intersected with increased killing by and murders by police officers, which were overwhelmingly felt in in poorer parts of the country and in slums. And of course, there have been increasing reports about the gendered um, dynamics of the impact of the virus, one of which that has has garnered lots of attention and has relationships to mental health outcomes is sort of exposure to intimate partner violence and violence against women. Um, And we have seen that in both rich and poor countries around the world, um, lockdown has coincided with increased rates of violence against women. So ultimately, and for us to take away all of that complexity and take it with us when we're trying to think about and plan for the promotion of good mental health, we need frameworks that enable that, um, enable complexity, and enable such engagement. And, and for me, this is really encapsulated with um, within the dynamics of a socio-political economy of health. Um, and. One particular framework that I have found resonated with me recently is um, uh, in a recent publication by Ted Schrecker, um, who is looking at the political economy of public health and particularly how ethics plays into these dynamics. Um, And he highlights the definition of sort of the political economy of health used by epidemiologist Nancy Krieger um, that really highlights that we are approaching health and the causes of disease and they're understanding them in relation to the political and economic structures that sort of organize our everyday life. Thinking about processes, power, social relationships, both contemporary and historic, which I think is a really important piece of the puzzle that many frameworks like the social determinants of health might miss this sort of historicity of policies and relationships and issues that really produce and embed the social patterning of illness. Um, And they do so because they set the parameters and the boundaries of the conditions where people live and work. And what I have added is this notion of survival. And I think by adding this idea of survival, we come to a point that is really important for thinking about future interventions and future development of support because it allows us to have a positive space to build from that recognizes and values the agency of people. So what I'd like to do um, is talk a little bit about some of what myself and colleagues from India, the UK, South Africa and Brazil have begun to think about in terms of what a social political economy for mental health or global mental health in the time of COVID might look like. Um, A huge caveat for looking at figures like these is they are sort of two dimensional positionings of three dimensional worlds. But I think what's value about a honeycomb shape is that if you think about honeycomb in real life, it's incredibly porous and things move and bleed between the different boundaries of any shape. And so this is really what we're trying to sort of encapsulate that um, at the heart of every mental distress at every diagnosis are social and political realities that drive that are driven by these intersecting social relational and political factors um, and the political economy reminds us not to simply focus on any one of them or two of them in isolation but the ways in which these dynamics are layered potentially reified and and through systems um, organizations and sort of our everyday encounters with each other um, and systems and policies that make the world go round um, so to get the real sense of a figure like this, I suppose you should imagine a person. Um, I'd like you to imagine somebody, uh, we'll call her Mary, um, and she currently lives in South Africa, um, a place where I've done many work, a lot of work over the past sort of 10 to 15 years years, close to 15 years. Um, But she's moved there from somewhere else. So she's not a native South African, she's moved there from another country, maybe Botswana or Zimbabwe or Nigeria. And as you move through each of these spaces of the model, you can come to realize how different dimensions of her reality and her self and her experience contribute to the experience of mental distress and risk for specific mental health conditions but more than that distress and risk that is deepened and doubled down through the compounding of risk and then the addition of coronavirus on top of that Um, so what i'll do is go through in the next couple slides some more concrete examples to a few parts of this um, sort of model and and what that looks like in the real world so, if we start with this idea around discrimination in relation to race, um, xenophobia, um, and caste in some parts of the world where this is something that um, is important, countries like um, India, um, then we know that these dynamics have long standing relationships to, to mental health, um, but also to experience of, of oppression. Um, and what we have seen so far in terms of, of COVID is sort of a doubling down of these historical oppressions um, with uh, sort of a new deepening of exposures to risk by coronavirus. So, um, for example, in the US and the UK, we see that um, black communities are more likely to um, die from coronavirus. They're more likely to be exposed to coronavirus through the types of jobs that they have access to. So again, here connecting to this idea of race and class and working conditions as bearing down on risk. Um, But something that's talked about a little bit less um, is sort of xenophobia, which is discrimination in relation to someone's place of birth. Um, And what we're seeing in COVID is that um, sort of current policies and also longstanding policies that have potentially created barriers for people to access supports that promote their well-being have worsened the have worsened under the coronavirus pandemic. So if we think about Mary, our, our, our woman, for example, we would say in South Africa, a lot of really beautiful policy has been written to sort of increase access to um, resources and support grants, sort of upping the value of support grants, but those are only available to people who are South African citizens. So despite the, the fact that Mary might live in South Africa, if she's from somewhere else, she wouldn't be able to gain access um, to that. In in the UK, a high income country, we see the way that these sort of debates around xenophobia and um, sort of Play out in terms of discrimination around migration status. Um, so, recent debates in the UK media about the exclusion of migrant women from the domestic abuse bill, which has recently been going through p- Parliament, is one um, particular um, example of this, where we see that women who were who did not have recourse to public funds were denied support underneath underneath the the bill that was proposed. If we move on to talk about some of political dynamics, that sort of ties into some of these policies that I'm just discussing in the previous slide. Um, And so really, we need to be thinking about not just contemporary policies, but how these policies might reflect historical relationships and inequities between countries. So this might mean the way in which we think about international regulations on trade and how that um, manifests into who is able to produce COVID-related drugs, who's able to buy them, um, who's able to hold patents, who's more likely to hold patents. We might see that play out in terms of international relationships, in terms of funding and financing responses to the pandemic in various parts of the world. So who is going to fund what, where is that money coming from, particularly in low-income countries where they have huge debt burdens. Um, It's important, again, to think about sort of these sort of national and sort of regional relationships as well. So for example, if we think about um, the UK and some recent debates on the UK's participation in various EQ procurement schemes related to coronavirus, we think about what sorts of legacies this might reflect and, and related interests in different areas of the sort of political sphere, but have huge realities on sort of contemporary efforts to ensure um, sort of equal and fair access to supports in a time of COVID. Uh, and finally, if we talk about sort of this dynamic of gender and sexuality, um, you could in this piece of the, the figure also include many other um, dynamics such as um, disability or and um, and what we think about here is sort of how sort of dimensions of personhood and norms in society might lead to increased burdens created by covid which have knock-on effects and consequences for poor mental health so for example the this big challenge that we've been talking about um, in um, relation to coronavirus around domestic violence and violence against women um, has sort of there's a well-known and well-understood relationship between mental health and IPV. And so understanding that this is again, a doubling down for for women who might already be experiencing mental distress, um, who are then forced to sort of live um, in close quarters with um, their abusers um, during times of crisis. Um, it's important to think about gender in as intersectional ways as possible. So thinking um, about men's increased Um, exposure to COVID risk and and is also related to gender roles. We know that men are more likely to die from coronavirus in many parts of the world, but the ways in which men's emotional distress or fears or concerns manifest in relation to these realities um, might be more buried or manifest in slightly different ways that are less likely to be supported. So for example, um, it might relate and contribute to increased um, um, substance misuse or deaths by suicide, as we saw in the example from India discussed a in few slides earlier. Um, and you know there are many sort of different intersections that we can think about in terms of gender and sexuality. We know that if somebody is from a, non, um, a non-binary gender, that their experiences in all of these areas will be much worse. Um, their mental health is likely to be much worse. Um, and, um, You know, that women, particularly women um, in the informal economy, will sort of be the biggest hit in terms of sort of being exposed to income inequality, which is another intersection in the model. So, um, sort of a recent UN report uh, published sort of last week suggesting that 740 million women working in the political economy saw a contraction in their incomes by 60% during the first um, month of lockdown. And these are really important considerations. So if we pull this all together and try to think about Mary again, this time putting coronavirus into the picture, you can see, and I'll try my best to make a very messy model understandable, that there are lots of dual directional arrows moving around here in Mary's life, very much in the center of a swirl of um, sort of, more likely for example if as a migrant to live in overcrowded accommodation which makes them less likely to be able to engage in physical distancing which is one of the primary um, mental uh, primary health promotion approaches in relation to coronavirus She might be more likely to be continually exposed to gender-based violence in the home um, has is unable to access government supports because maybe um, legislation Mm pre-existing legislation limits that um, at increased risk of um, targeted Mm -hmm. policing because she lives in a low-income area Mm -hmm. um, which increases her exposure to violence Um, and all of these have consequences that lead to specific mental health outcomes Um, very expected mental health outcomes um, that if we only treat through medication or expanding treatment essentially medicalizes a whole host of sort of deeply historically and structurally embedded challenges that are feeding into this mental health problem Um, and with the addition of covid we know that there has been sort of reduced capacities in a lot of mental health services which is putting burdens on already underburdened and under-resourced mental health systems around the world so if we're going to act we I sort of need to take this moment to think about how we do so differently and better and for me that brings us to this need to build mental health enabling societies um, last week in his final report as the special rapporteur on the right of everyone to enjoy um, the highest possible standard of physical and mental health Um, Mr. Pura spoke quite plainly and frankly about the challenges that um, we find ourselves in in this complex global mental health space, Um, that we've had a burden that is very much socially embedded and anchored, but for the most part, we've only focused on some parts of this reality rather than others. Um, And he challenged us to, to go further. And in doing so, I want to bring our attention back to the model that I sort of started us off with in thinking about these pathways. And, and what Paras is saying is essentially that we spend a lot of time thinking about the green pathway, the social causation or social drift pathway, thinking that the development of mental ill health is more likely to lead people to fall into poverty and catastrophic risk, and that is very much the case. And, um, and But in thinking only in that way and only that piece of the puzzle, what happens is that we have a disproportionate focus on poverty alone as if poverty does not intersect with all of these um, different challenges that i've previously suggested um, in the previous section of the of the talk Um, and so what we need to do is is go beyond that and the rest of what i'll talk about today focuses on how we might do so so um, Along with colleagues, um, about 21 other colleagues, social scientists and critical um, scholars who are interested in sort of the social realities of, of mental distress and coronavirus. Um, we put out a sort of an open letter yesterday in um, Welcome Open, talking about the need to create societies where mental health is possible. Um, And this very much fits with arguments that I've made previously in Lancet Psychiatry and and other colleagues, such as Sumitra Parfei, has talked about in terms of a care gap in global mental health, in which we are sort of called to anticipate and respond to how societies create the need for care and how fractured societies lead to the experience of distress. And the only way to respond to these sorts of gaps is to think about social interventions in ways that treat social as social and political realities as well. Um, so we don't essentially over-medicalize what are very real and valid psychological responses to the worsening of already fragmented societies for many people in the world. And so we talked about a couple things in this piece. We talked about the need and the importance of really good social policy. Um, and when we think about that, we should think about this happening at scale. So in terms of the global space, we Really think that it's uh, so I would argue that it's really important to advocate for eradication of and debt relief for low and middle-income countries because these sorts of structures ultimately lock countries in cycles of being unprepared to respond to crises as they emerge and unprepared to shift funding to different health sectors as it is needed, including mental health. Um, of um, huge importance will be continuing to push for public inquiries and justice around racism and racialized oppression that is happening all around the world that sort of creates huge sources of trauma and distress for people in all places and all spaces um, of the world um, and investment and in a lot of places reinvestment in social welfare and social protection services that have seen cuts in recent decades created by austerity policies all around the world um, um, and so, I think another thing to think about is the importance of uh, sort of the politics of care um, and thinking about how politics and policies that we develop in this context need to be acknowledging the inequalities that put people's mental health at, at, and well being at risk. So, an, a nice comparison that I tend to think about is the difference between the South African and the UK response. And the South African response um, during lockdown was to increase the amount of social welfare grants, and they were grant payments, so you didn't have to repay that money. And in the UK, these were loans on universal credit, which means at some point you needed to repay that money. And given what we know about the relationship between debt and experiences of um, distress and shame and, and mental health in the long term, those types of policies, those simple differences actually make a huge difference in the lives of people. Um, and importantly also is the is the need to think about complex interventions. So when we are thinking about mental health interventions, are we supporting the development of interventions that maintain a focus on people's survival needs? Or are we just thinking about psychologies and, and, and the psychological and neurological components of a condition? And for me, that pushes me to think about, well, what are the spaces where we could see these things that we usually think about as in terms of prevention, as a sort of good social policy or collaboration and engagement with others, um, as a form of treatment, as the foundations for developing treatment, um, and also starting with um, what is good and how people survive as the basis for our solutions. And that interest has really been what has fueled much of my works for the past decade, really thinking about um, how we start with survival and and bottom-up approaches for the way that feel people manage to survive in conditions that feel unimaginable and feel feel like we can't so and are there sort of four parameters to how we can achieve competencies to promote the development of um, mental health enabling societies the first around this is knowledge and one piece of the puzzle might be mental health knowledge but the other piece of that would be around um, Acknowledging and deploying Indigenous knowledge as a way of supporting coping strategies among groups and communities. Another big aspect of this is um, solidarity and the identification of strengths, sort of work, supporting groups and working with each other to identify and name what is important um, and coming together to to tackle sort of collectively big structural problems that are at work in people's lives, driving poor mental health. The third to this um, is this idea around safe spaces and dialogue which pushes us to think about where and how engagement happens to promote mental well-being, thinking about personal and individual characteristics um, that might be points of discrimination for others and how we can create safe spaces for people to engage around this and also spaces to challenge um, sort of stigma and exclusion that happens on these parameters. And finally is partnerships which is really important in thinking Um, The context of global inequalities and local inequalities around the world, acknowledging that when people come together to identify and develop solutions to the big problems that relate to their mental distress, they often do so from disadvantaged positions. And so how can we leverage relationships to enable that? Um, this is an example of a model that we tried to use in Colombia um, with colleagues from uh, Universidad de la Sabana um, in sort of 2017 to 19 um, to build mental health enabling contexts for people who are internally displaced by conflict. And this was a pilot study using participatory action cycles to support internally dis- people who were internally displaced by the, the Colombian conflict. Um, and supporting and promoting their collaboration um, around issues that are important to them and looking at that as the solution to improving their mental health. So these are people from the general community, which is often sort of a space where community mental health interventions are lacking. And what we looked at was how participation in these sorts of spaces might improve dimensions of psychological and social well-being and so groups got together and locally defined what mental health was to them what mental distress was to them and what recovery was to them and from those collective definitions got together and identified tasks of action to come up with solutions to those problems unsurprisingly for many um, of the people in our study these um, were structural um, realities Um, so they were around poverty and lack of access to education or reliable employment, but also around personhood and the need to sort of restore and connect to memory about themselves that is is positive and valuable and important. And so over the course of engaging in that action, we sort of did a participatory evaluation with these groups using photo voice and analysis of this is still ongoing. But what we found was that um, people saw increased feelings of, Um, social actualization, which is an idea that you feel that you and your group that you're affiliated with can achieve good things in life. Um, Also increased feelings of autonomy and mastery and feeling like you had success over your sort of social realities. And these are dimensions that are really important to the promotion of good mental health and the prevention of the development of mental illness. So to wrap it up, I, I ultimately think that if we are going to try and push forward this idea of socio-political economies of, of global mental health in a time of COVID, we need to think about um, more than just increasing access to mental health interventions um, and closing treatment gaps to improve lives. We really need to be pushing for and sustaining global and national movements to address inequality. We need to support and enable locally commun- local communities action and solidarity among us in our everyday lives, which has the ability to restore meaning and purpose in a space where a lot of this feels like it's been lost as a result of, of coronavirus. Um, and a good place to start in a country like the UK is these amazing sort of um, coronavirus sort of self-help groups that have been popping up all over the country. Um, and we need to push the boundaries of our, of our intervention so that they keep hold of the full range of social and political realities that individuals bring to the table in the space of treatment. Um, And I think only through this type of sustained action on all fronts will mental health for all truly be possible. So I think that's it from me. Thank you so much for listening. And I really look forward to your questions and comments and chatting with you for another 15 minutes or so. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Rochelle, that was uh, wonderful. I think we've got about um, between 7 and 10 minutes for questions at this point. Uh, and there have been a few um, via the Slido. And uh, you can still add your questions um, if you want to. So Rochelle, if I um, ask the first question, this is from Saloni Atal, And uh, the mm-hmm. question is, um, the social and structural determinants of mental health are clearly important from a policy perspective, where do you start in organisations and also at the federal, sort of government level?
1: So where do you start, sorry, at the federal?
0: Yeah, at the federal, at the government level, or in organisations, so, you know, within our universities or within within charitable sectors. So where would you start, uh, you know, making these changes where you take the societal uh, issues into account?
1: Well, I think... Um, If we're thinking about promoting mental health enabling societies, then in a way we have to see that everything is related to mental health, which means you could start anywhere. You could, um, for example, um, there have been calls in the UK to promote um, a universal basic income as part of a recovery package. This is something that would alleviate a lot of sort of Anxieties and burdens in some of the most marginalized groups, in historically marginalized groups in these countries, who might have been already on universal credit schemes or had precarious employment that is is lost as a result of the um, of the outbreak. And putting that in place really sort of takes a lot of the pressure off in relation to concerns about where is my meal coming from, where, how am I going to take care of my children, how are they going to be kept safe, will they have a roof over their heads, and responding to those sorts of realities through sort of high level policy is going to have huge mental health impacts in the long term, particularly around this idea of the tsunami that people keep talking about in terms of mental health burdens related to coronavirus. I think the real tsunami will be the ways in which we compound and drive mental distress in the lives of people who are already marginalized and oppressed historically by bad policy. So if we can start making sort of good policy, thinking about income redistribution, debt relief, um, transitioning from sort of loans to grants. These are big types of policies that in the interim will sort of be the most protective and enabling of good mental health, I think, Um, which goes a lot further than just having people understand the sort of signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety and, and, um suicidality which are big important pieces but don't get to the root of where those experiences might come from
0: so there's um there's another question which is, is somewhat uh, related uh, which is that do you think that uh, medicalizing mental health problems conveniently sidesteps the wider societal issues associated uh, with mental health and i might add to that you know, maybe there is a bit of an empathy deficit in that if you don't yourself suffer from poverty or, or various inequalities, then the most salient thing for you around mental health are those symptoms of distress. And it's perhaps harder, harder to think about that in, in some other people. They may come about for a variety of reasons that you might not share. So w- what do you think, uh, you know, we can do to sort of highlight that issue?
1: Right. I mean, medicalization is is a... A huge problem one that we've sort of been talking about in, in critical psychology and critical psychiatry for a really long time um i think i think it is is something that does occur but i i don't necessarily know if i feel that it's always purposive purposeful in that sense right so um and i guess the way that we avoid it happening by accident because people people who make policy are people, right? And so they come to it, as you say, say, with their own sort of framings and realities of concerns and where concerns might come from. And I suppose that one of the ways in which that we can make policies more sensitive to the ways that they might result in um, the medicalization of distress is sort of widening the spaces where decisions and analysis and work around mental health is happening, bringing in other disciplines that think about these social science, social social and political um, and social psychological pathways to distress, and having as many people in the room as possible, including people who experience and live with mental ill health, people who um, live in poverty and experience distress, having as many voices around the table when we're building our frameworks and our theories of change will avoid that. I think that's the best way to try and avoid this sort of medicalization that we keep seeing happening over and over again. And I think it's because people from the same parts of the world and the same backgrounds are talking to each other about what they think the solution is rather than diversifying that as much as humanly possible.
0: Great, right, thank you. It's a question about children's mental health. So the question is, how has this impacted children's mental health, global mental health during this time, and how do we approach it? So their sport structures have seen a major disruption worldwide, for instance, because they've not been able to attend education. Yeah, that
1: is a, a really important question and a big comment. Um, I, most of my work is on sort of like young, sort of early adulthood into adulthood mental health. But from what I've seen is that we're starting to think about sort of the consequences holistically around um, children and coronavirus. I guess the most, a very long time ago as a developmental psychologist, so I'm gonna try and sort of dig back into those archives a bit, Um, but in terms of, the biggest sort of disruptions this can be is initially sort of thinking around sort of like stability and and safety um around sort of loss of school and educational access but when you move this to thinking in different parts of the world um being in education has been one of the most protective factors for young women who for example are at risk for early child marriage or forced marriage. And so closure of schools and lockdown of schools, and I think it's over 700 million young women who are vulnerable um, around the world or not in schools, means that um, we can't protect them or give them access to those types of resources. And there are um, significant sort of mental health consequences in relation to um, sort of risks and fears of you know being forced to marry early or, um, that will arise out of this, um, out of that particular phenomenon. Um, In terms of what we can do about it, I think some of the clearest resources that I've seen um, have been developed um, by the WHO around parenting during the pandemic and they've been translated into dozens and dozens of languages and they're very short, um, sort of one-pagers that sort of talk about how to support children's well-being during the crisis. Um, And there are really sort of down-to-earth resource that use pictures and very simple language um, to sort of support families all over the world at different, you know, at different resource levels.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're great. There are means for us to share those afterwards for those who are interested if lunch, they contact that one. Yeah,
1: yeah, please contact me. I, on the first slide, I sort of had my Twitter handle, um, but you could sort of Google me and then send me an email, and I can connect you to people and places where work is being done and, and where resources can be found.
0: That's great. We have time for one more question.
1: Great.
0: Um, and there is a question from Darini asks how can we effectively measure and evaluate mental health and well-being in order to build a strong case for interventions uh, in society and I might add that is that one way do you think there are other ways in which we can help build against?
1: Um so measurement that's sort of the big big challenge in sort of mental health and global mental health isn't it thinking about um how much our tools resonate to people's everyday lived experiences and i think we've got a lot of sort of um sort of tools that are theoretically universal in the sense that they are acknowledged and used quite widely Um, one that comes to mind is sort of the phq9 which is around depression um and the gad7 which is around anxiety and those have been used very widely and validated and um Um, translated into many languages Um, and sort of these measures are very straightforward and and down to earth and in sort of looking at cognitive reflections on how much the questions sort of map onto people's realities. Um, What I found in my work that for the PHQ-9 that it resonates quite well with um, women's everyday experiences in terms of trying to get at what they're going through. in sort of general populations. Um, but I think importantly, we, we could push our measures further. And I sort of wondered about methods where we try to develop um, more locally anchored measures for mental health that don't originate in sort of the sort of Western English speaking world, um, using things like Um, For example, the Shona Symptom questionnaire, which is used in in Zimbabwe um, and developed in Zimbabwe around local idioms of distress and and really pushing ourselves to develop local indigenous tools to identify and connect to how people experience mental health in their lives and relations of these contexts. And I think there's lots of scope to do more of that. And I would sort of challenge and and push people to do that. and try to do that um, in places where they can and they have the resources, um, and also sort of for mental health research to actually go in that space to actually say, okay, we've accepted that um, you know global mental health is is, is this s- mental health is this thing that is globally manifested, and it's a challenge that everybody faces. And can we come up with local definitions for what these challenges are, rather than having sort of these necessarily these standardized tools, which may or may not be helpful.
0: Great. Now, I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to thank you for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed the lecture. I'm sure you did. Uh, I'd also like to give a big thank you to Dr. Burgess for her time today. It was a really, really fascinating lecture. And you will all receive an email in the next day or so with a short feedback survey. Lunch hour lectures are now over for the summer, but we'll be back with more exciting content in the autumn and uh, i hope you will all stay well thank you thanks very much